Hey, and welcome back to more musings from man sitting next to the toilet. <laughs> I spoke with Ari Haro, who is the CEO of Itur Financial Intelligence, which, uh, as the name suggests, helps companies and governments investigate other people's money. Now, I can't say that we spent too much time talking about that uh, topic. Interesting, no doubt, uh, that world uh, must be. Uh, instead, we, we focused on Ari's life prior to starting the company. And if you look up Ari, you'll see that he had a really distinguished career uh, serving under Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And also that he was accused of fraud um, for violating a conflict of interest agreement while serving in government. And that he's had to give testimony in the... Uh, corruption investigations into Netanyahu. He couldn't go into details on any of that stuff for understandable reasons, but it was fascinating to hear what all this does to a person. I mean, imagine your whole life, you know, everything that you've done, and all that gets rocked to the core uh, because of a mistake, e even if it's just a perceived mistake. And that mistake becomes known to countless amounts of people. I mean, are you all of a sudden a different person? Does the alleged mistake define you forever? What about all the good that you did before that? And uh, as I said, this wasn't much of a conversation about how we relate to technology. But that's the cool thing about being a tyrant in my little fiefdom. I get to bend some of the rules. So, huh. Anyway, I'm, I'm not ashamed to say that I really enjoyed my time with Ari. Uh, I can say that I didn't get the sense, not, not for one second, that I was sitting with a moral monster. I'm far from it. Uh, and I'm curious to hear what, what you all think. Anyway, here's our conversation. I hope you enjoy. Let's get all the awkward energy out of, <laughs> out of our systems. Let's do it. <laughs> How do you get your awkward, awkward energy out of your system? Like when you go to a conference or something, right? right? Yeah. And there's just people in any other setting that you can think of, you wouldn't want to talk to them, right? You have nothing in common with these people. Right. What do you do? Glass of wine. Glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> Always takes off the edge. Just wine? Oh, you know. I'm trying to get I'm you definitely, in trouble. I'm definitely a scotch <laughs> fan as well. Um... Uh, you know that's that's more for later in the evening. I wouldn't start off the evening with. Uh, Imagine, actually, what what do you think? Like, if you went to a conference and and they just served hard liquor and I don't know joints and stuff like this, like what would it be more productive, less productive? Um, I mean, the whole point of that is to make human connections, no? Yeah, and that I, really helps. There's no question that, uh, <laughs> you know, it tears down the facade. Um, but, uh, you know, there are people that can handle their alcohol and there's people that cannot. Wait, uh, what bucket so do you, uh, do you follow? I'm, 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 I'm not a, I'm a mild and, uh, you know. Sporadic. I wouldn't call it sporadic, but uh, I would say that it is, um, you know, very tempered. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you tried alcohol? Um, so I, I grew up in a home where my, my father was not a drinker, still is not a drinker. Really? Uh, yeah. Never. I mean, 
even Kiddush on Shabbat, he'll have grape juice till today. No wine, nothing. Funny. My in-laws are the same. Uh-huh. And my wife is also pretty much the same. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So, it was uh, It was later, I, I think after I finished the Army, I, I, I ended up moving to uh, New York City for a couple years. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, single guy on the Upper West Side. I was introduced to uh, a lot of things. <laughs> do you remember what your first drink was? I do not. No, I do not. <laughs> it must have been a hell of a night. <laughs> no, my my first drink. My father gave me a Budweiser when I was ten at a family barbecue, and I remember actually the like my lower jaw being sort of slightly numb. Um, and I, and I do kind of remember a buzz then when I was ten, and my father said something to me like better you learn this at home than anywhere else <laughs> or something like that <laughs> yeah so but yes you didn't you didn't get that kind of life lesson from your no, uh your definitely parents. definitely not at home on the streets but, in new york yeah yeah but we've made up for it so it's all good <laughs> man you've had you've had um you've had some life you've led yeah yeah how how i mean first of all you moved you moved to israel in what year was this 1985. 1985. Summer of 1985. Okay, so yeah. that's almost 40 years ago. Yeah, we're we're closing in on 40 years in Israel. Holy yeah. shit! Yeah. Okay, but 1985 Israel. By the way, that's that's the year I was born, and that it was a good year for both of us. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that that year, like Israel, must so much has changed, right? In 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 those whatever it is, 37 years. Yeah, I mean the country has changed dramatically. Yeah, um, you know, I, I would say that the, the the level of growth in so many different sectors um, and felt by you know the average person living in this country is probably as dramatic as you know the first forty years of the country. Mm. Uh, the, the the jump has just been astronomical. Yeah. Do you? Uh, I was just having a, a conversation with um, this woman that runs this uh, grocery across the street from my house, and she was whining about how the people of Tel Aviv are are not as not what they what they used to be. More spoiled, just wasteful. And I wonder, do do you sense the same thing amongst Israelis now that they get wealthier? Um. <clears throat> Not, not as much, uh, you know. I think that that's uh, it, it's always uh, very easy to look back at the good old days when everybody was, you know, nice and friendly and polite right. and clean, and there were no problems. And it's just not reality. I yeah. think that uh, one thing that has not changed from 1948 till today is uh, the military service, mm. and that's the great equalizer in this country. And yeah. it doesn't matter whether you're from, you know. Uh, North Tel Aviv or from, you know, Dimona, uh, you're going in and you're in that melting pot. And I think it brings everybody, you know, down to a certain uh, reality that, uh, yeah, that, you know, takes off that that type of edge. Do you do you, so your oldest now is this, is in the army, right? Correct. And he or she? She. Right? She, she. she. And where is she serving? Uh, military intelligence. OK. In one of the eight units? Um, well, her <coughs> unit has another name, and it's it's actually very funny for me when she says, you know, Abba, I can't tell you what we're doing. Um, but no, <laughs> it's not one of the eight units, but uh, another interesting unit within intelligence. Okay. Yeah. 
But that, how many people do they take a year, those units? Not a lot. Not I, a lot. I don't know what the numbers are. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was very excited when she got in and uh, what, why, a lot uh, of pride. Yeah? Yeah. Just because the work that you thought that she would be doing? Well, I think in general, uh, regardless of what unit your child ends up in, especially as someone who made Aliyah as a child and served in the Army, I can tell you that um, the the moment I saw her um, on uniform, right, in Madim, yeah. um, was the moment I said to myself, okay, I did something right. Um, it was really that impactful for me to see my child serving uh, the state of Israel, and, um, and it was amazing. Um, the fact that she ended up in a unit that uh, is interesting and impactful is just, you know, the icing on the cake. Tell me, tell me more about that, because it's a discussion my wife and I have basically since the birth of our first son. We have three, as I told you. Um, and, you know, she, she worries, and, and I worry all, to a certain extent as well, about what what that means, right? I mean, yeah, to wake up one day and have that terrible phone call, um, you know, that, that, that sort of worry runs through her mind fr- frequently, I would say. Yeah. Um, but you, when you saw your kid in uniform, you you felt a sense of pride, right? Just, yeah. You you finally felt as if you did something right, which right. is which is right. kind of crazy. Right. right. To right. Think about your story, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I hear you, and it's definitely something that parents, you know, worry about. But at the same time, you know, as a as a father of three, you also worry when they cross the street, right, or when they take yeah. the bus to school, or when they go on a field trip, or whatever it is. And I think that as a parent, you never worry. Um, you never stop worrying, rather. Um, and for me, uh, and it's funny, I was actually talking to a friend of mine the other day, a doctor friend, and we were talking about how, because I spent a number of years living in the U.S. Uh, yeah. Later, you know, as, as an adult and as did... Drinking liquor and... Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that, you know, in the off hours. Um, <laughs> and my friend as well um, went to medical school there and, and, and worked there for a while. And we were saying how yeah, the... You know, the 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 fear of a meaningless end in the U.S. Um, is much more uh, worrisome than, God forbid, something happening here. I mean, there is a sense of meaning to your life when you serve in the army, um, and and even walking down the street. You know, God forbid, people who are you know, uh, harmed or killed in, in terror attacks, there's meaning to that, at least that's the way, that's the way I feel and that's the way I was raised. Um, yeah. So uh, you don't want any of that for your children or for anybody right. for that matter. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, that's that's part of living. Yeah, it's, it's. Um, I mean, so it is a question of sacrifice, right? Of, of how much, how much do you want to give up how much are you willing to give up for this this crazy project that is right. Israel, right? Right. And some people really do sacrifice their kids. I mean, it's it's um, horrific. Yeah, it's horrible. Right. Yeah. I, I I I can't go there mentally. I don't I don't want to enter that mental space. Yeah. Um. But it it does come with those benefits that you mentioned, right? Where it's it it pits you into into Israeli society, right? Like he, I remember, so I served in the military for, for a year. Um, I was in uh, 
I don't know. I don't remember what it's called in English, but it's um, kishechut. Uh, mm. how, how would you translate that? Um, foreign relations. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so I was there for a year, mm-hmm. and I was old. I was 27. Everyone around me was right. Very old. <laughs> yeah, super old. <laughs> Everyone around me was, you know, 18, 19. And uh, but but I got this insight into Israeli society. I was like, oh, that's why the restaurant service here is so bad. <laughs> it's like uh, these people around. These are the these are the waiters and the waitresses. Um, it's gotten better, but, um, it's, it's just, you, you get a window into society here. And then of course there's all the responsibility and all the things that, that come along with it that, you know, uh, someone that grew up in the U S you just don't get at that age. Right. Right. And that, that, if you're in one of those elite units that does such meaningful and heavy, uh, duty, it, it's got to transform you and put you on this trajectory for life. That's unlike anything that most other people in the mod- in the West, say, um, understand, right? Completely agree. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that in certain cases, even prior to serving in the military <clears throat> and then definitely in the military service, I, I can tell you for myself, uh, I was 12 years old when we moved to Israel. We made Aliyah. Yeah. Um, between that age and, uh, the t- and, the, and 18, when I went into the Army, um, I lost a number of people in my orbit uh, to terror attacks. Uh, really? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. There were people in school and people that I knew. and In school? Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, even as a child, as a teenager, it changes the way you look at this country and you look at life and you look at yeah. um, your purpose in life. Yeah. And I think that the army crystallizes that even even further, mm. and I, I completely agree. I mean, when you're, you know, 18 or 19 or 20 in the U.S. and you're at your frat house and you're, you know, you're drinking your whatever it is you're drinking and you're having a great time, and that's great. You know, yeah. that's fantastic. Nothing negative with that. Um, but here, you know, at you know, th- those same evenings, you're you're spending patrolling the border in Lebanon or you know something else of of that nature and it just changes your perception on on many many things and that stays with you for the rest of your life when when you said that um you lost friends or people that you knew when you were a kid in school yeah well i mean how did your parents react um i mean it, it it's never easy it's never easy, but, but they didn't um, freak out and say, "Oh my God, what did we do? No, we to get out of here." Uh, so I, I, I come from a very idealistic um, uh, family. Mm-hmm. Um, we moved to Israel uh, right around the same time as my grandparents and a bunch of my uncles and aunts, and it was it was really like a, okay. a, a broad based family decision um and there was a, there was a deep seated ideology way before then that you know Israel's the place to be mm-hmm. uh, very um active and i'd say even prominent family in los angeles um founded or w- one of the founders of the uh, uh the jewish day school and some of the synagogues and and stuff like that yeah. and um and Living a very good life there, um, very successful, and they all just decided that you know life is not life is more than that, and Israel is something that we don't just believe in from afar. Um, and they moved out here, and 
Um, I think that you know, hand in hand with that type of decision is uh, you know, the, the, the trials and tribulations that you yeah. uh, that you have to deal with as an Israeli as and as someone who's you know, put themselves uh, out there. Did you? I, I always um, I wonder about the impact of experiencing some someone's death close to you at such a young age and what that does to a person. Right. Um, yeah. Like, for example, my, 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 I remember my grandmother, that was the first funeral that I went to, but it was like, okay, she was old. She was in her eighties. She was a bit sick. Right. Nothing really too interesting or, or, or it wasn't extraordinary. Right. But if a kid in your school gets killed in some terrorist attack, I mean, I would imagine that the the takeaway that you have from that as a kid is like, oh Christ, that that could have been me. Yeah, um, I, I you definitely it, it it changes your perspective on on things. I I think that it there was definitely an impact throughout high school when we had to deal with these mm-hmm. type of events because uh, there. It, there were multiple. I mean, I, I grew up in the Shomron, um, in Samaria. Okay. Um, so where exactly? Um, Nevealiza, Karnei Shomron. Um, so it, it's about um, twenty minutes uh, east of Kfar Saba. Okay. Um, and back in those days, you were really on the front line, um, and there were, unfortunately, you know, multiple events over the course of my teenage years. Um, but the but the one. I would say event that really, or the one uh, terror attack, murder that really shifted my path in life was actually when I was in the military, when I was Mm. in the army. Um, I had a friend who uh, was a Canadian uh, volunteer, came to Israel to serve. He was older than everybody else. We were 19 at the time. He was 24 post college and his name was Yoshua Friedberg okay and um, and he volunteered he was in our Golani unit and towards the end of our advanced training uh, he was um, chosen to go to officer training school and on a uh, it was uh, it was the day before Purim um, and he was hitching a ride out of Jerusalem, got into a car with what seemed to be three Orthodox Jews with kipot on their head and tzitzit out. And uh, a minute or two into their drive towards Tel Aviv, they turned around and and murdered him. And um, for me, uh, as as you know, as someone who served, the, the people in your immediate uh, surrounding your unit they become brothers for life, and you see them in their uh, most difficult situations. And so we had a very strong bond, especially him being someone who uh, was more comfortable in English, and and that really changed uh, my outlook on uh, how short life can be and, and how um, you have to find meaning in what you do in this world. Yeah, so, and you think that set you on your trajectory into your career as... You know, involved in politics and no question. Yeah, no question. What is it that married with sort of the ideological upbringing that you had, or? Yeah, I mean, I, I was always um, somewhat of an activist, I guess. I mean, mm. as a as a teenager, um, once we moved here, I mean, I remember, you know, hearing stories of uh, 
Jewish refuseniks in the former Soviet Union, and when you know Natan Sharansky, who I had the privilege of becoming uh, close with later on in life, uh, was released. Um, I, together with a cousin of mine, uh, got on a public bus. I mean, I was 15, 16 years old, and you know, back in those days, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a quick ride. You had to take a bus from one place to another to another. Mm-hmm. But we slept to the airport to be there, um, you know, for when he arrived. The same with uh, Ida Nudel, and uh, and the same was true. I mean, this was back in the time of uh, the first Intifada. There were there, there was a lot of political activism at that time. Yeah, uh, demonstrations yeah. and. Uh, uh, a lot of public discourse around, you know, various issues. So growing up at that, you know, at that time where I grew up definitely instilled a, a very strong sense of not only ideology, but activism. So th- this was, this was like the late eighties, if you're 15, yes. 16. Yes. And what was going on back then? It was the first Intifada was more or less about the breakout. Uh, yes. The first Intifada broke out. I think it was 87. Um, okay. Yeah. And so there were, you know, uh, there were uh, terror attacks. There were, um, yeah, yeah. There were issues, uh, and yeah. that that led to what becomes, you know, the Oslo Accords and uh, and various concessions. And there was, you know, very deep seated debate within Israel as to uh, the right path to to, to yeah. dealing with that issue. And, and how did you, how did you find yourself in New York? in the world of Likud politics? Um, so uh, after I finished my undergraduate studies, uh, it was clear to me that I wanted to do something on behalf of the state of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, I started off in the world of NGOs uh, with a focus on Hasbara. Uh, I just wanted to help Israel do a better job yeah. um, getting the message across. Uh, my first job out of college was with um, was with the newspaper Makorishon, uh, but not as a journalist. Um, nothing against. Well, we won't get into that side of thing. Um, but okay, I'm not, I'm not a journalist. <laughs> right. It's fine. Um, but it was it was actually to bring an awareness. Uh, to uh, the pro-Israel community in the United States uh, as to what Makorishon was all about. Just Makorishon, just for, I mean, I'm, I'm vaguely aware of what they do, but they're... Makorishon's a newspaper. A pro, um, pro-settler, um, right? Well, you know what? It, it was actually founded as, and I think I think they've pretty much stuck to their guns when it comes to this. It's actually more of a secular right-wing mm. newspaper. I would say that over the years it has shifted maybe a little bit more towards, um, uh, you know, let's call it religious Zionism. But... Okay. Um, but some of the founding um, journalists there were very well-known, um, very prominent journalists who uh, just didn't feel like they fit into, uh, back in the time, Yediot and, and Ma'ariv mm-hmm. or Haaretz, and, and they wanted something that uh, well, represented... With the viewpoint that... Um, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong sure. here, but, but with the viewpoint that the settlements aren't... are. Or what? It's a valid project. It's not. Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely on the right side of the map. Okay. Uh, supportive of. Uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just that, trying to define what you mean sure. by right wing. Uh, yeah, yeah, the secular part I got, but right. Okay. Yeah, so definitely, um, I would say, 
against the creation of a Palestinian state in Judea and Samaria, yeah. um, you know, supportive of the settlement <coughs> enterprise, etc. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that was my first job out of out of college, and uh, from there I went to work at um, Honest Reporting. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, you really don't uh, like journalists. Uh, well, yeah, that, that was that was really the early days of of honest reporting, and uh, and it was fascinating, and uh, and that sort of um, opened the door to my uh, uh, yeah engagement with people in the political realm, and one of the people that I met through that work was. Uh, uh, Who's a close friend till today? Sharon Sur, a prominent um, uh, supporter of Israel in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and um, and she was on the board of American uh, Friends of Likud and uh, called me up one day and said, "Hey, you know, there's there's an opening here," and and that was that. What 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 did uh, the American Friends of Likud do then? Like fundraise, um, partying. So. Um, it's interesting because at the time it was really so American Friends of Likud was created. It's it's a completely U.S. Um, uh, based organization with no official ties to the Likud party here. Mm-hmm. The only I would say semi official um, involvement is the World Zionist Congress, which um, takes place I believe every four years. And there's um, in the United States the representatives of American Jewry that are sent to the World Zionist. Congress um, are voted upon through uh, a national election of members. Okay. Um, so many, um, let's call them interest groups in Israel, not necessarily political parties, but in some cases, political parties have set up, um, you know, satellite uh, organizations. Again, with no official ties, but just to garner uh, support from that type of constituency okay. and increase their representation at the World Zionist uh, Congress. Okay. Um, so it was really, you know, somewhat of a uh, shell of an organization when I was introduced to it. And every person I consulted with told me, don't waste your time. I and mean, it's just, <laughs> there's nothing to do there. Okay. Um, and it's, there's nothing real behind it. And there was only one person um, who has been a lifelong friend and mentor to me, and that's uh, Ron Dermer, who said to me, he said, all right, you have nothing to lose. Uh, if you go and you fail, nobody will notice. And right. if and you for, succeed, yeah. then... And for, for anyone that doesn't know, Ron Dermer is, was, uh, until very recently, the Israeli ambassador to the U.S. for I don't know how many years. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he was ambassador to the U.S. Prior yeah. to that, he was a uh, senior Funny. advisor to the prime minister. How, wait, how did you guys get... How did you guys get connected? I mean, he's from Miami, right? He's from Miami. Uh, he made Aliyah. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know exactly when he made Aliyah, but yeah. we became, we were first, um, I would say, opponents, and then uh, <laughs> became friends on the football field. Um, okay. He was the starting quarterback on the perennial champions here in Israel, Big Blue. And we were a young, up-and-coming team that uh, we, we played them in the championship a number of times, never beat them. Um, what position did you play? Uh, I played receiver uh, on the offense uh, on the offensive side and uh, cornerback on the on the defensive. That's side. funny that yeah. Ron was quarterback. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He he said, you know, what, what's amazing is that as we get older, and I can't run as fast as I used to, and yeah. You can you can you can still throw. We were actually out on the football field together for an old timers game uh, about six seven months ago, and and? Uh, and 
he can he can still throw it downfield and no <laughs> no one can you know no one can run that fast and catch you know the bomb anymore but uh, <laughs> but he can still throw it yeah um anyway so yeah so he gave me the advice to go ahead and take the job and uh and i took it and so i guess to answer your question as far as the, the purpose of the organization really was to act as an educational um platform in the u.s um to sort of you know promote and support uh, the ideology more than the political stance so um, when you when you look back on your time there you is it does it feel more like a, a time to study up on right-wing Israeli politics and, and the Likud? Um, no, it, it was, you know, I, I was well uh, immersed in Israeli politics at, at that point. I mean, you know, it's every Israeli home, uh, you know, becomes a battleground for political debate on most Friday nights. Um, you know, we live in a society, I guess less so today, but back in those days, um, when when the news came on, and you know, I would say once an hour, but then you have the uh, you know update uh, yeah. halfway through. Um, literally, the bus would you know shush down, and the bus driver would turn up the volume, and everybody in this country would listen to the news every hour on the hour, and yeah, every that's... evening. Um, you know, there was one television channel back then, and yeah. and then eventually there were two. But eight p.m. That's what you did. You sat in front of the television. And you watched the news. So it's a very is that uh, is that a population that's just conditioned to think you never know what today is going to bring, like like some some attack or some God knows what. Right. Yeah, I, I think, but but I think it's more than just the security um, mm. element. Uh, it's a country where pretty much every decision affects you, right? And whether they build a road here, or you know, economic decisions, or you know, healthcare decisions. There, there's really, you know, in in many countries, definitely in the United States, if you don't know who the president of the United States is, uh, it. it probably doesn't affect your life in a day-to-day, -day, you know, from a day-to-day -day perspective mm. that much. Mm. Um, you can, you know, you can disappear for a couple of years and no nothing changes yeah. dramatically. In this country, you know, I think that every decision really yeah. has its impact on, on pretty much everyone. Yeah. I mean, and, and also <clears throat> in all those countries, especially the ones that haven't seen war in, I don't know how many decades, right, on their own soil, you can you can essentially just disappear from life you know you can live on a farm and everything's sort of fine and right. stable and quiet and peaceful and uh you know several countries maybe many countries have this kind of um parts of the country that are that are that uh quiet so you don't need to be constantly updated with whatever the hell's going on in your country right, right. it doesn't doesn't really impact you as you said yeah um but it's interesting that it's not just the security; it's also just like uh, would 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 Israelis listen to the news and then hear a new road has been built? No. Um. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they would. I mean, <laughs> go go back to those. I mean, even today, there's parts of the country that you know, there's there was a there was a you know a bit of a, a media spike regarding an, a road that was opened a few weeks ago down south um, mm. that was named after the former finance minister Moshe Kahlon. Okay. Um, he but, got a road. He got a road. Okay. He got a road, 
and he's still, uh, you know, young and healthy. So, kola <laughs> kola to him. But um, but back in those days, um, I mean, there, there, there's really been uh, a tremendous, um, I would say, revolution uh, from an infrastructure perspective yeah. in this country over the last decade or so. Yeah. Um, so when you know the Fishesh. Uh, yeah, was developed. Uh, that was newsworthy. Uh, that okay. was something that changed the lives of pretty much everyone in the country. Yeah. Um, and the same is true for you know various other projects that have taken place. Yeah, uh, that's true. Actually, now that I think about it, Israelis are obsessed with traffic. Are they? And <laughs> they really no. It's it's such a it is a topic of conversation for right. millions of Israelis every single day. Right. So right. a new road that opens up the congestion just a little bit or. Even yeah, you're right. Like I remember when they put those um, those special lanes, yeah, on the highways, right? right, which made absolutely no sense, right? Because <laughs> I think the so the carpool lane was on the on the right hand side, which is right next to where you get off on the exit. But just like in America, it's all it right. makes to me it makes more and more sense. It's on the on the all the all the way on the left hand side of the highway. But yeah, I remember it was it was like there were news programs. Yeah, yeah, you're right. right <laughs> That's <right>. funny. <laughs> okay. Um, Okay, so, so so back to you in New York with your uh, you and your your one man yeah. outfit, um, right? So, yeah. So so um, I, I think first of all, the focus really was um, on education. On the one hand, um, we at the time uh, one of the ideas that I had, and I was able to to to, to bring in some significant partners, um, was that the. You know, the Jewish organizational world had recognized the problem on college campuses. Mm. And when I looked at that, <clears throat> I thought to myself, they're, they're right. Uh, but most of these people, most of these students that are coming to campus um, are not in a position to even care or even know enough to, um, to better prepare themselves for what they're going to run into. And therefore, I felt that you need to start before college. Mm -hmm. There has to be a high school program that sort of gives them the tools and um, creates a willingness on their part to, to stand up for Israel. And you look at the numbers, the vast majority of Jewish students on college campuses don't don't get involved. Um, they're, they're not going to Hillel. They're not going to APAC. They're not going to the other organizations that are active on college campuses. So the fight that's taking place is really taking place amongst a minority of Jewish uh, students. And so we, we launched a program to begin education of, uh, of Jewish students uh, during their high school years. So that was an example of, of one program that we did. Um, and there were, there were many others. Mm. Um, and at the same time, we tapped into Likud, and not just Likud, uh, Knesset members when they came uh, over to the U.S., and that was something that was somewhat um, uh, novel at the time. Um, they, I say they, I'm, I'm referring to the Likud uh, leadership, really did not have a deep understanding of the United States, which was shocking to me at the time. Uh, you know, there were senior ministers who had served in governments for, you know, decades, and they didn't know... Um, they knew very little uh, as far as who their target audience should be, who they should be speaking to, what their messaging should be. Um, How is that possible? It's 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 um, it's mind blowing. Like I mean, they didn't they didn't map out um, Congress and the White House. No, I, I and by the way, I don't think that the situation has changed 
uh, drastically over the last whatever it is 20 years since I got involved. Um, what you know, Netanyahu in that sense is really uh, you know in a league of his own. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a few others, uh, Danny Danone, uh, for example. I, you know, I'm talking about the people on the Likud side. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, our president today, Bougie Herzog, had a pretty good understanding of um, of the U.S. But most Israelis, and it's 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 so shocking because when you talk to Israelis and Israeli leaders about the importance of the relationship with the United States. I mean, it is the most important thing, you know, from a foreign policy perspective, right? right? right. Our relationship with them for military uh, support, for international support in international bodies, uh, economic support, um, you know, culturally, we're most closely aligned with the United States. And um, yet, the amount of uh, you know, time that they invest in learning and understanding the United States is, is minuscule. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So enter Ari Haro. <laughs> so we, yeah. So that, so that became... As the guy who can juggle between both worlds. Right. So, so back in New York, I mean, that's what, you know, that, that became part of what we were trying to do was both educate them, but at the same time use their knowledge and experience to educate the people in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and thank God it it it, it went well. Uh, so uh, it wasn't a failure, and, and we were able to grow the organization. Uh, by the time I left, we had uh, we had offices in Miami and Los Angeles, and New York, and wow, uh, we had a nice following. And uh, what what is that world like? Is that just not just, but is that uh, dictated by wealthy benefactors and their um, I don't know their their ideological commitment, such as it is to to Zionism in Israel. What what is that? Um, so, you know, we, we tried to move away from heavily depending on um, on those type of benefactors mm -hmm. and moving towards more of a grassroots uh, approach. Okay. Um, and having visiting um, leaders from Israel allowed us to do that because uh, mm. everyone wanted to come out and hear them, and that would that was really uh, an easier way to get people involved. Uh, obviously, as a nonprofit in the U.S., you need to you need to raise money, and uh, that was you know just to fund your activities. Um, but but it was more about bringing in uh, a larger membership and expanding our messaging and reaching more high schools and college campuses and uh, yeah. So and then and then from there, where did you go? Is that when uh, you became BB's uh, campaign manager? Uh, no. So I I um, so I. I started to interact with uh, Netanyahu even before I left for uh, for the job with uh, with American Friends Likud. It was actually right around the same time Netanyahu decided that he was going to return to politics. He had taken a three-year hiatus after uh, after the '99 elections, and um, same Ron Dermer uh, called me one morning uh, when I was living I was living in Jerusalem at the time, and said Netanyahu is coming back and I want your help. And I said, "Tell me where to come." And and I was there. And it was a very short um, uh, Likud primary. Netanyahu ran against Arik Sharon. Um, and literally at, at the exact same time, I I got my, the offer from Likud in the United States. And I asked them to hold off and and see um, 
let's see how things play out in Israel. Yeah. Uh, Ron was expecting to continue with Netanyahu into the prime minister's office if if that was going to be the path, and had expressed his interest in me joining him. So mm. I uh, so I waited till uh, after the Likud primaries. Netanyahu lost to Arik Sharon, and at that point, I said, "Okay, I'm I'm going to take the job in the U.S." So so that was that was my first meeting with uh, Netanyahu. Okay. And then over the years, in my position with with American Friends of Likud, we um, we spent a nice amount of time together, and he did a number of events for us, and uh, and he got to know me. And um, did you did you sense there was a star quality back then, or it was just you, this is like another politician that you've. Uh, no, it was just it, it was not another uh, politician. I mean, you know, some I, I can tell you that even after years of working with him, uh, I still felt walking into his office or walking to a meeting with him that, you know, this is, uh, yeah, th- th- this is a prime minister. This is mm. uh, a true leader. Um, the first time I saw him in person was at an APAC uh, event, an APAC conference in D.C. when I was working for Honest Reporting, and I remember just being blown away by his yeah, oratory skills and his messaging and his uh, uh, ideological stance, and uh, it was then that I thought to myself, okay, this is a guy that, that I would love to work for. Mm. Um, what What is it about him if you think about it back then, or even if you think about who he is now that separates him from from the pack? Is it is it just the ability to speak well and communicate well, or is there some kind of moral virtue that elevates him above the others? Well, what do you... Um, well, first of all, I think that the oratory skills that you're referring to are very important yeah he's phenomenal um he's phenomenal and um you know once we entered the the tv era uh, back in the you know the days of jfk and till today um you know even over social media the ability to uh, connect and convey messages to whoever your target audience is is just it's a very unique trait, uh, even amongst political leaders. You look around, most political leaders don't inspire you. And he has the ability to inspire a crowd or to inspire the listener. Yeah. And I think that that, um, that carries a lot of weight. But I guess my question is, oh, yes, you can have great um, speaking skills, but there's got to be some sort of substance, I think, to move and right, to inspire. Sure. So, sure. so what is that? So I think that... Um, you know, uh, on many levels, well, f- firstly, uh, intellectually, um, you know, he's just um, a, a super, super intellectual. Um, it's rare uh, to be in a room with him where somebody else is on par or, you know, God forbid, you know, above him uh, intellectually. I mean, mm. he he's extremely bright um, and not just book smart. I mean, he's able to um, read the room and understand what, you know, what can fly and what and what won't fly. Mm. Uh, and again, from in a political environment, that is it's a critical trait yeah. to have. Yeah. Um, and then I do think that the ideological um, shift that Israel uh, that that's taken place in Israel. I mean, it started in '77 with the Likud's rise with Menachem Begin, and if you look over the past, you know, whatever that is, 35 years, um, 
there's a clear uh, ideological tilt towards, uh, you know, let's call it those, uh, that that political stance. And I, I, I call it that political stance because the issues have changed somewhat over over time. And there's been, you know, there's been peaks and valleys uh, when Sharon took the Likud in a different direction and the Gaza disengagement. That was, you know, that was a very... Um, that that was a moment that had Likud down to twelve seats in Netanyahu in the what I think two thousand five elections. Yeah, um, ended up with twelve seats in the Knesset, and I think that um, he ultimately was the beneficiary of the swing back uh, to the right when the Oslo Accords uh, collapsed and people were dying, you know, weekly in the streets of Israel. Um, there was only one place for them to turn, and the only real leader on that side of the political map was Netanyahu. And with time and his ability um, to, um, I guess, sort of uh, settle settle the boat and um, and lead Israel out of that period, uh, ultimately benefited him. I mean. <clears throat> You mentioned the fact that he's that he has this ability to enter a room and read, take take temperature of everyone, and as you said, that's critical for a politician, right? Because the way we communicate is, I'm going to say something to you, but I, most cases, I might mean something else. Like I have a question, but there's a sort of an underlying question behind that, right? Right. Or uh, I don't know. You say, "How is that coffee?" You're like. Well, I don't know. And then you're actually thinking, oh, it was terrible, or I should have been hotter. You know, there's all there's all sorts of games going on, right, with, that we don't necessarily show. And for people to pick up on that, it's like a super skill, you know, because there's they're basically essentially having two conversations at the same time. Now, if he can take the temperature of a room, it, it also strikes me that he's able to expand that out really... Um, almost as far as anyone can in Israel, which is like the fact that he can take the temperature of an entire country. I mean, not the entire country. Right. It's like, I don't know, more than half the people hate him. But right. um, it is still impressive. Like, okay, so let's say half the country really detests the guy, and but like 30 or so percent really, you know, they admire him. They, they're with him no matter what. That's more than anyone <laughs> by right. far, right? Right. Can, uh, can claim. Yeah. Um, and... And, and the ability to communicate something that resonates with that many people and survive the vicious nature of Israeli politics to have the kind of career he's had, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Um, and, and he's back again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that ultimately, you know, it's, it is a unique um, ability, definitely in the Israeli system. Uh, as a parliamentary system... You, a, a political leader or a politician is not encouraged to connect with their constituency. Mm. You're voting for a party. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever party you vote for, how many of those Knesset members or potential Knesset members do you actually know? Do you actually have you actually heard from? Uh, do you do you really know what they stand for? And the answer is no. I mean, you can even take the three other uh, prime ministers that we've seen in the last uh, 15 years, right? Yeah. Uh, Olmert, Bennett, and Lapid. Mm -hmm. How many people in the country really have an opinion on them? Probably not that many, you know? Well, and they may, they may say, they, you know, yeah, he was okay, he was okay. They don't really have an opinion. 
like you said with Netanyahu, everyone has an opinion. Yeah. <laughs> everyone has a strong opinion sure. because this is somebody who has connected with you in one way or another. Mm -hmm. You may love him, you may hate him, but this is someone who's connected with you. And um, I mean, one thing that I think is true to, to all great leaders and is definitely true in his case, it's not just the communicative skill. Um, mm. It is also about defining your goals. Uh, something yeah. that I've, as I, I ended up working with various political leaders around the world, and I, I, I always told them, you know, before you decide on a strategy, before you decide on a million other tactical decisions, let's clearly define what the goal is. What is it that you want to accomplish? And he's very good at that. He knows exactly where he wants to get to and how he wants to get there. Um, and and then it's a matter, I, I, I've compared it to Waze before. You know, Waze is unbelievable technology, but if you don't put in a destination, uh, then it's never gonna get you there. When you put in the destination, it could give you three or four or five different options on mm. how to get there, mm -hmm. um, but you need to be very, very clear as to what your destination is. And that's something that I think many politicians lack. Um, they're a little bit more short-sighted. They're, they're worried about what's gonna happen tomorrow and what job am I getting you know, next. Um, there's no long-term vision and long-term goal, and I think that that's something that he's always had. Mm. Interesting. And, and I mean, he does come from a family that tends to look at certainly Jewish history with a very long and deep lens. So the next five years is sort of irrelevant, whereas the next 10, 20, 70, whatever is, is more to the point, right? Well, I, I don't think it's irrelevant. I think it's, it is relevant. Uh, but yes, Sorry, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely agree. I think that, you know, anytime you, you look at current events, you know, through a historical lens, um, first of all, your, 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 your ability to gauge the reality and the trends is much, much greater mm. uh, than getting, getting caught up in, you know, in today's news. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that... Well, um, I'll ask this in a, in a different way. But um, so, so what was it like to work at at the prime minister's office? I mean, it was it just so your first job was uh, the, the bureau chief, right? Well, so I started with uh, I started with Netanyahu in the opposition uh, for okay. a number of years. As I started off as his foreign affairs advisor, right, uh, which was literally anything that had to do with anything outside of Israel. So it was. Uh, international media, it was uh, diplomacy, it was travel, it was speech writing, and and so on and so forth. Um, uh, it was an interesting crew uh, when I first joined. The chief of staff was uh, Naftali Bennett, <laughs> and the uh, bureau chief was Ayala Chaked. No way. Um, the communication advisor was Ophir Akunis. Um, the uh, political advisor was Shalom Shlomo, who's the current cabinet secretary. Um, so it was it was a very unique crowd, and um, I don't even remember how long after I started. Maybe nine months after I started, um, Bennett and Chekhed uh, resigned, mm -hmm. um, and it was then that uh, that I that he asked me that Netanyahu asked me to be his uh, bureau chief um, without a chief of staff. So I, I guess probably roughly around a year before he was reelected. So this is like 2008. Okay. Um, I was sort of acting 
chief of staff, bureau chief, and foreign affairs advisor. Okay. So it was uh, it was a challenging time. Um, and then when he was elected in 2009, I entered the prime minister's office with him as his bureau chief. And okay, and, and so, so according to Wikipedia, yeah. which I trust with everything I've got. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've actually heard it's quite quite reliable. Uh, yeah. I, I, mostly. Mostly, yeah. <laughs> Not everything on the internet is, but yeah, Wikipedia right. is uh, closer to the truth. Right, right. Um, so, um, so you were in charge of a schedule, which, you know, the Prime Minister of Israel, I imagine, has many, 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 many requests on his time. Right. I mean, that must be just war, right, for a slot with him. Uh, yeah, I mean... Th- and you're you're the guy sort of taking right. all the bullets and, and firing them back. Yeah, I mean, th- there's no question in my mind that the job of prime minister uh, of Israel is the most difficult job in the world and the most demanding job in the, the world. In the world, why uh, why, why is that? I don't. There, there's few countries and probably no countries on a you know on a long term basis that face the type of. Um, I would say both existential challenges um, and significant challenges that the state of Israel does on on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Um, the possibility of war breaking out in this country has existed every single day uh, since you know May 1948, mm. and uh, that is something that no other leader in the world or no other nation in the world has had to uh, ha- had to deal with. Um, you know, there's a famous story of the Israeli prime minister. I've heard different versions of which prime minister it is, so I won't give uh, them credit. But in a meeting with the United, with the president of the United States, I think it was LBJ, uh, when uh, they, uh, the, the the president said, you know, I have to answer to 200 million people at the time. The Israeli prime minister said, well, I have to answer to five million prime ministers. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's a challenging it's a challenging job from that perspective. Um, so yeah, so it's it's extremely demanding on the prime minister. Um, I always when I when I think about it, the like what it must be like to be the prime minister, I I think like what if what is the I don't even know if it's the president or prime minister of like like a, like a Switzerland or something right that that person probably goes to bed at nine you know right. has this hot chocolate like what, <laughs> what what's going on in that country yeah I mean that's just uh, here that's it's just, just a blessing nonstop right? it's nonstop it's nonstop and I, I think that part of part of the job it's not you know it's not a secretarial position it's a position of you have to understand what's important to the prime minister and to the country at that you know that specific moment yeah. in order to shape what it is that he's doing and part of that is sitting in on those meetings and making sure that you know that things are headed the way he wants them the mm. way we want them mm-hmm. um, and being able to follow up and you know uh, accordingly it's um, a hell of a responsibility for yeah. for someone yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that? I mean, you lasted what a year in that seat. So I was, um, so I was his bureau chief for, you know, like I said, maybe a year before we went into the prime minister's office, and then a year in the prime minister's office uh, that first time. Yeah, was around. it just yeah. the pace was too grueling, or? Um, you know, it was years of working with him, right. and where uh, it's it's extremely taxing, um, physically mentally emotionally and um i ended up i ended up in the hospital not far from where we're sitting right now um in the cardiac unit at Ichilov. 
I don't remember how old I was at the time. I was in my, you know, early 30s, maybe mid 30s. Um, I, at the time, I had three young children at home, and I said, I love the country. I love what I'm doing. I'm not ready to call it quits yet. Uh, so I need to I need to step away. Whoa. Um, so is that is that common? Um, it's definitely common to, uh, you know, to, to feel the, the effects of the job. You know, one of the, one of the fascinating, um, uh, 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 pictorial, um, comparisons that, uh, that they, that they show is between the president of the United States upon entering office and, and after finishing <laughs> his term and just seeing how his hair yeah. has completely changed colors. Yeah. And, um, I think that, um, the same is true for people around, uh, a leader. Um, I think that, you know, you look at the United States, most chief of staff or, or senior, uh, advisors, uh, you know, don't don't last through one term in office. Mm. Uh, so there's definitely, uh, uh, you know, it, it's definitely there's definitely a price to pay for it. Um, but it's just it's just so wild that the pressure of maintaining someone's schedule can drive a man to having heart serious heart problems. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't I'm, describe the job really as me as just you know his, his schedule. No, no, no. Yeah, I, it's I, I'm I'm taking on board the right. seriousness of the job. Right. But I, as you said, you have right. to make sure that the time he spends is spent in the best interest of right. managing the country. Which right. Is, you know, and as you said, when any any day war can break out or right. God knows what, um, every one of those half hour meetings or whatever, it's it's. it's yeah. Momentous. Yeah. Exactly. And at the same time, I mean, he's an extremely hard worker um <laughs> and like i said just sitting in on those meetings from you know 9 a.m i mean he didn't start early in the morning but uh you know it was an early night if we got out of there at 9 10 o'clock at night um mm. when you're doing that day in and day out and the travel and like you said the demands and the highs and the lows yeah um it definitely takes its toll and uh, yeah so at that point i said it's time to step away so then you started your own company. I started my own company, which was for, uh, that was for political. Firm. Okay. Um, so really, it wasn't uh, necessarily political in nature uh, at its inception. I mean, it, we we did do political work, uh, but it was sort of a jack of all trades consulting firm. We did some business consulting. We mm. did some international relations, some uh, nonprofit. Um, but ultimately, uh, it did take me into the world of international political consulting, and mm -hmm. I ended up doing some work uh, in various countries around the world. In in just in the West and uh, other countries. No, um, did a number of uh, did a number of campaigns in South America, in mm -hmm. Africa, mm -hmm. um, some in Europe. Uh, all all uh, democracies or, or not always. Uh, all uh, democracies are striving democracies. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, Africa is mm. uh, is still developing, um, so. But uh, but the elections were all held democratically and uh, yeah yeah did um, did you did did the experiences that you had in Israel feed 
or help you in any way with with these other countries? Is, it, oh. is, is politics all the same in every country? Or, or? yeah, no question. I mean, I <laughs> so I, I I sort of you know changed the uh, the uh, you know the old saying from all politics is local to all politics is global. Uh, we live in an era where. Uh, the methodologies uh, that are used in any one country can be applied uh, pretty much everywhere else. Um, I mean, obviously, there's local nuance and culture and, and, and language and stuff like that. But ultimately, um, you're using the same strategies. You're using, you know, you're using um, uh, research and, yeah. and uh, digital uh, marketing and, you know, all of the different tools of trade that are used in in Western societies, but with the same fundamental insight that what what makes us all tick. Well, with the right polling, uh, you're you're able to to dissect and to dig in in a, in a much deeper fashion as to what really concerns uh, the voters. Um, and there's other factors that come into play, which are not only what what makes them tick uh, from a policy perspective, but are they going to come out and vote, right? They may they may have very strong opinions, but they're not coming out to vote. Mm. Um, you know, where are where is your support lacking? Where is this where is the low hanging fruit? Um, and how is you know what's the most effective way to get your message across? So there's a lot that goes into it, regardless of what your message is and who you're targeting. Uh, yeah. In in all your years of of you know working with um, like like Netanyahu and you know consulting for other uh, campaigns and politicians, do you do you take comfort in 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 the people that uh, choose to spend their lives as political leaders, or do you have other feelings about that? Um, you know what I think that. Uh there's not there there are definitely not enough uh true ideologues uh that that go into politics today um i think that there there are real leaders out there um but unfortunately i would say many of them uh many of the political leaders whether it's in israel or elsewhere are driven by um you know personal goals or ego or other, uh, you know, drivers, but, uh, but there are still some good people out there. How, how can someone put up with the stress and the weight of the office if they aren't in this for some greater good? This, I don't, I don't really understand. Uh, well, I, I think that in some cases, again, I'm not referring to any Anyone? I, I actually think Israel's a little bit different in that from that perspective. But elsewhere, there. What do you mean? Because uh, I do believe that the vast majority of leaders in Israel, uh, and I, I, I mean, I mean people that are that stand um, uh, for election as prime minister, not necessarily every Knesset member, but mm -hmm. definitely most, if not all, people who have stood for election to be prime minister really do have a deep-seated love and concern um, uh, for the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it goes back to what we were discussing before, which is 
the immense challenges that we face on a daily basis, you don't have the luxury of doing this for secondary reasons. Mm. Um, whereas in other countries, like you said, Switzerland, right? And then I don't want to pick on Switzerland, right? But, um, <laughs> but wow, that's a really cool job. I would love to do that, right? In other words, <laughs> that that is really your driving point. The same guy that wants to be a partner at a law firm or you know have a successful VC fund right. also wants to be president. You yeah, know? Um, <laughs> that's funny. So it's like, what 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 exactly are you going to change in Switzerland, really? Like it's everything's working pretty much okay over there. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, the real challenges are in uh, you know countries that have messed up systems that have mm. real problems, mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, in many of those countries, you don't really have uh, the vision or the, the leadership to come in and make significant change. And now, is that a is that a, a one byproduct of not having the right heroes to model oneself after? Like, for example, in Israel, there's but I mean, a rather long list, but you right. know, you can already just like you have, we already have a Mount Rushmore, say, of sort of heroic figures that sacrificed this or led the country in this right. uh, dark hour. And so there is this narrative, national narrative of self sacrifice that, okay, I'm going to be the next Lingurian or I'll be the next whatever, right? right? Herzl, right. so on and so forth. Well, I take it back even further. I agree with you. But, you know, we as Jews uh, have this instilled in us from, from a young age when we're taught the, you know, early stories of Bible, right? Um, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, uh, and the list goes on and on. Mm. Um, they weren't just, um, you know, religious figures. These are people who led their nation uh, in you know, in some of those cases, led them into the land of Israel. Um, so you have the, let's call it, you know, the biblical era. And then, as you said, you have the m more modern era, people like Herzl and Ben-Gurion and Begin and uh, Golda Meir and other uh, early leaders. I take issue with Abraham. Yeah? I, th I think he's been uh, overrated. Why is that? <laughs> he, um, <coughs> excuse me. I mean, all, all I know he's like the first Jew and all that, right. but, you know, really... He almost sold his wife to some Egyptian prince. I mean, uh, I'm not impressed. Right. Uh, well, you know what? I think that one there, there are numerous scandals uh, <laughs> in the book of Genesis. And I actually, you know, I, I actually look at that in a very positive light because, uh, you know, Judaism is not a religion of we're perfect. No, you know, we don't have not, saints. No. And, you know, no, our, our <clears throat> founders, our leaders, yeah. our forefathers, they, you know, they, they made mistakes. Um, right. King Jake, David. Jacob. You know, he tricked Jacob, his brother. I yeah. mean, they all did. Yeah. There, there's nobody. Moses, right? God told right. him not to hit the stone, and he did it. Um, Isaac was a fool, right? He just worked to marry the wrong woman all, all, all those years, and then he had to do it again. I'm like, well, this is not someone I want to <laughs> uh, follow. Right. Yeah, no, so uh, there, there, there are definitely um, lessons um you know, very strong lessons to learn from those experiences. Yeah. And I think that that's part of what makes us who we are. Um, but Abraham did, you know, I mean, that's how the book, uh, the, the, the Parsha, right, starts when he um, he left his family and left his, you know, he made Aliyah, uh, basically. New language, new culture, left the family behind and came to this barren, you know, piece of land in the middle of nowhere. And, um, and it wasn't easy, and famine hit, and he has to go, to Egypt for, you know, for a respite. And um, ultimately, I think that 
those figures blend into the modern figures that you're talking about. Mm, mm. Um, and and by the way, the modern figure, Ben Gurion would constantly, uh, you know, reference uh, the Tanakh, the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, he saw what was happening here as um, a realization of some of those prophecies, uh, as did you know some you know many of the other leaders uh, in that mm-hmm. generation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, it was a big thing that he did to try to revivify the the Jewish myths or heroic tales of, of the past and, and bring them into the present. Um, it's very, it's powerful. It's very powerful. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, it's so hard to create, you know, the... I, like, I, I know nothing about South Africa, but, like, uh, there was no Mandela, I suppose, before him, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. I... I, I I'm not uh, uh, my, my South African well, knowledge is is limited, but but I I think that to your point, I mean many um, definitely the older uh, cultures and civilizations have a history. Yeah. Um, and I think that in those cases, that history does drive uh, modern leaders to, as you said. Uh, yeah. Uh, try to follow in those footsteps. I think that's you know one of the challenges that the United States faces now when some of the founders um, are being brought into question, right? Whether mm. it's uh, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. Um, you know, uh, I think Yuval Noah Harari talks about it in *Sapiens*. How uh, the you know. To, to use his terminology, right, the, the fictional concept of uh, of a country, mm-hmm. or of a nation, needs its uh, symbols. Uh, those symbols are what allows you to rally around a flag or yeah. you know, to protect your borders, etc. And when you start to dismiss those symbols, or if you don't have those symbols, then it's uh, it's a recipe for disaster. And, yeah. And, I think that we are very strong on our symbols here uh, in Israel. I think we always have been. They're everywhere. Um, yeah. And I think that that definitely uh, is advantageous when we look to, our, to choosing leaders because they're brought up on that same uh, dose of symbolism and ideology that, uh, that we all are. Okay. So now you have your company and then for some reason <laughs> the, the the close call with death uh right. <laughs> wasn't enough to um right to deter you a, another time to come back to uh to the prime minister's office what right. what happened what uh <laughs> you know um the magnetic that, pull of Netanyahu like what it's you know i i think it's 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 really that deep-seated <clears throat> zionism and ideology okay, i was how I was, did you work it in your mind you made the decision to say all right this is not healthy for right, me right right that's a that's a life decision. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, <laughs> you know, you walk it back a couple of years later. Right. So I was I was actually sitting in a meeting with the president of Paraguay at the time. I was in South America, mm-hmm. and my phone was just ringing. And when I was there, I wasn't answering any calls from Israel, but it just kept ringing. So I finally answered, and it was Prime Minister's office. And uh, Ari, the Prime Minister, wants to talk to you. He said, "Where are you?" And I said, well, I'm in South America. So, well, come in and see me when you get back. I said, okay. And he I called had, you a million times just to say, come and see me when you get back? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's sort of his style is, uh, you know, 
come see me in person. He he's not a he's not a phone guy. Uh-huh. Um, Is it true that he doesn't have a, a smartphone? Well, back in my day, he didn't. I've seen reports that he does today. Okay. Uh, uh, when he re-enters the office of prime minister in the coming days, he may uh, he, he may uh, uh, get rid of it. But uh, okay, okay. But yeah, he he did not have a cell phone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so. Um, what were you thinking when he said, "Come and see me"? I I, I had an idea because uh, uh, I I was still in contact uh, with him, with the people around him, and uh, right. I had an idea what he what he wanted, and my inclination and my leaning was uh, exactly what you uh, what you refer to, which is you know I I've I've done it. It was great. I'm so yeah. happy and proud, and you know, but it's time to just move on. Um, but coming, you know, landing in Israel, going up to the prime minister's residence in Jerusalem and sitting with the prime minister just like this one-on-one, when the prime minister of Israel says to you, yeah, you can't say no. I need you, yeah. uh, the country needs you, um, and talks about some of the challenges that the country is facing, yeah. you know, it's just game over. What What is that? Is that, I mean, the, the call to answer, the, the, the appeal to answer a higher call, yeah. He's so seductive, right? So in and of itself, this this appeal to um, higher good and meaning and purpose is, we all crave it, we all want it. But is there an ego thing of like, oh, okay, well, I get to serve also in, in that as well? Um, was it more of like a, well, look, this is, yes, the prime minister has asked me personally to help um, and to take a, a really meaningful role in, in his office. Right. Um, and this is, way beyond anything that I could possibly do. So, you know, you're consulting and you're helping other people shape their political campaigns, but with the prime minister's office, you're really shaping right. the way this country is, is going. Right. So was it just a combination uh, of all those things? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't want to be the one to say that it's not about ego, it, it, but it wasn't. Um, I was very content uh, in the private sector. Um, I do believe, you know, I'm a big, big believer in Viktor Frankl's, you know, man's search for meaning. Yeah. Um, and, and I do believe that, um, getting back to the story of my friend Yoshua, um, at that point, I, it, it was a, it was a conscious decision that this is my life's purpose and having the opportunity to fulfill that purpose in life uh, um, for myself, I guess that's, a, you know, I guess the selfish side um, was dramatic. And at the same time, um, you know, there, there, there's definitely a, a very strong element of self-sacrifice. You know, you're taught in the army. I, you yeah. know, I was in a unit where every week we had, um, what's called in Hebrew, right? We had to carry the stretcher. They put, you know, many times the heaviest soldier on the stretcher and you would, you know, walk through the night sometimes for many hours and many kilometers just carrying that stretcher. Yeah. And you're taught that you want to get under that stretcher because if you don't get under there, your friend is going to hurt. Your friend is going to drop and you want to get under there to carry your weight and yeah. that was that was an opportunity where at the highest level i 
was asked to play a role and, and get under the stretcher. And um, with, with that in mind, it, you know, personal freedoms or, uh, you know, sort of fall by the wayside. How did your family take it? Um, they were supportive. They were supportive. Really? Yeah, uh, they were supportive. I mean, again, they, they weren't worried about. I mean, just what happened before. Yeah, you know, I, I, I was always in pretty good shape. Yes, you know, the heart thing definitely was uh, was a scare, but um, but I was still young and and still healthy, and um, and uh, and they shared the ideological beliefs that that I had, and uh, and they were supportive. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you think you think you could have done it with, without their support, no way. No, no. Um, I mean, as it as it was, it was a very. Um, it, it wasn't an easy decision. I mean, it ultimately was an e easy decision. But I, like I said, I I enjoyed, I enjoyed being in the private sector. I, I tend to shy away from the spotlight, and I was afraid, and that was one of my concerns going in. As chief of staff, you're uh, you're thrust into that. Um, really, much more so than as bureau chief. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, let's put it that way. And um, what do you mean that they put you in front of a TV camera? Or no, that? no. I mean, I d definitely that was something that that I wasn't going to have any of. But um, but it's just the nature of the job that you're you're more exposed, and uh, and that wasn't. You know, that wasn't my personality, and that wasn't what I was looking for. And, okay. Um, uh, yeah, but ultimately, like I said, it was the it was the the Zionism, the ideology, the belief in the cause that 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 drove the decision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So now we we sort of get to the awkward part where you're limited in what you can say about what happened um, after. So. There, there were two things, right? There was there's the stuff that you were accused of, and then there's, and then there's your involvement in the in the investigations into Netanyahu, the I think two 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 of the corruption investigations, right? Uh, well, that's what the media reports. Okay, I, I'm not aware of two, but uh, yeah, I'm not gonna argue that. Right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, you know, when we we spoke before this, you said you know, um that you're really just, your hands are tied, you can't really yeah. talk about this stuff, yeah. which is fine. Um, <laughs> I'm not trying to get you into any more illegal issues, <laughs> but um, I, I do wonder, though, psychologically, how that affects someone. Yeah. Because, um, like, you know, reputation is such a fragile for thing. Sure. Like for one, sure. One day, you're the guy connected to the most powerful man in the country, right-hand man or so, so, something like this, right? right? Something to that effect. And then the next day, it's like, oh my God, can we trust this person with anything? Right. right. right? There's right. that thought running through. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, um, I um, I moderated um, a conversation. I don't know what the hell that means. I had a conversation <laughs> in a live event with um, Jonathan Pollard uh, last week, and you know, so much has been written about that guy, what he did, and and you know, it's it's never clear what is in a person's heart and what's motivating them right um so just for anyone that doesn't know jonathan pollard an american guy working for i think it was the u.s navy right and he was um essentially um passing on confidential information from u.s intelligence to the 
I guess the Mossad in in the 80s and he was uh, caught and sentenced to I think 30 years in jail in prison uh, uh, it was something along those yeah. lines right and and then all sorts of stuff came out about him that he was selling it to the South Africans maybe he was selling it to the Pakistanis he denies all this stuff and um, but the moment he took money from the Israelis it's like now it's sort of cloudy are you doing this for the money are you doing this for ideological reasons anyway when I spoke to him he's just this lucid clear thinking he's a religious man it, I didn't get the sense that there was any malevolence in his story he just he just fell into a trap that got him that landed him in jail for three decades right and dictated essentially the the better part of his life um but he still has that thing hanging around his head of like well what did you do it for you know right and i do wonder like how you right feel after so i i guess before i I answer your question directly. I'm, I'm going to take a step back for a yep. second because we sort of skip over that, you know, year and a half that I was sure. acting and that I was chief of staff. And the reason being, um, and I'm actually finishing up uh, the writing of, of a book, um, which God willing will come out uh, sometime next year uh, in 2023. Um, that talks about that period because okay. I think it really was a dramatic um, and uh, historically altering period for the state of Israel. This was uh, 2015. This right? was 2014, first 14. half of 2015. And that, um, and you were there at the period when Netanyahu went to Congress, or that was after? Yeah, no. So I was there when Netanyahu went to Congress. It was it was everything yeah. that transpired leading up to that. Um, Sorry, let me just let's spell that please, out. So when please. he when he when he went to speak to Congress uh, against the deal that the Obama administration was trying to cook up with with the Iranian regime. Correct. Oh, okay. Correct. Uh, I mean, in a nutshell. Right. right, right. Uh, obviously, <laughs> it's it's a little bit more than that, but yes. Yeah. Um, so that whole period, uh, and and again, I, I I mean that's that's really the focus of of my book, but um, is is um, historical on many different fronts and, and really ends up sh changing the direction that Israel and the region and to a certain degree the world takes after that. Um, with the Abraham Accords and, and other right. uh, other uh, developments that took place uh, as a result of <coughs> some of uh, some of the things that happened that year. So and I mention this because the decision to come back to the prime minister's office from that perspective was the greatest decision uh, I, I could have made. Um, and I'm saying that even in hindsight. Uh, I, not only as, um, not only as uh, you know, no pun intended here, but a witness uh, <laughs> to historical events, um, but to have played, you know, a limited, a minor role in that, yeah. and to have been there to strengthen um, the prime minister's convictions, in you know when needed, and 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 to weigh in on issues uh, of life and death, and of tremendous importance to to our people and our country. Um, it it uh, it was the culmination, and it was the pinnacle of you know 
man's search for meaning. And, and, and I think that that is something that, um, you know, if I had to do it over, I would do it a hundred times over. Well, and, um, I mean, Netanyahu and, and Ron Dermer, of course, they say they, they always pointed that moment being he, he finishes that speech and then heads, heads of state and, and Gulf in the Gulf in Arab countries say, wow, I can't believe you did that. You know, that's something along the lines of how great would it be if we allied on our common against our common enemy, which is the Iranian Iran. regime. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, so that's I mean, that's basically the, you know, the underlying thesis of my book, which is really that, um, you know, there was a buildup leading up to that speech uh, with Iran at the center. Iran was always at the center for, you know, go back 20 years. That was Netanyahu's. Uh, focus and I think that again there's various events that took place along the way to sort of shape that but yes I I strongly believe that that was the turning point in the way that the the region has now been reshaped um, our ability to uh, to stand up to our closest friend and ally and say this is uh, of greater importance um, did you already sense it then um, not with the same clarity that I do today. I definitely, um, you know, th there definitely was a sense of purpose and history as some of those events unfolded. Um, but obviously hindsight is, um, is a tremendous, uh, tool when, when trying to gain historical perspective. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so that was tremendous. And um, so anyways, just so getting back to your question, um, it's shocking, right? It's um, and I can't get into the, the details, but, you know, uh, suffice it to say that not anything I was expecting and uh, not a, anything I was prepared for. And to wake up one morning and have your world turn upside down is uh, is definitely a shock to the system. Um, I know, you know, before I went back to the prime minister's office, uh, you know, after he after he pitched me at the prime minister's residence, I, you know, I took a few days and consulted with some people, and um, uh, I'm thinking of one meeting uh, specifically with uh, former uh, director general of the prime minister's office who said, Ari, everybody gets burnt. Um, and you, you came out, you know, squeaky clean. You're in great position. Don't test fate. Just don't do it. Oh my um, God. and as I said earlier, you know, that wasn't what was driving me. And, uh, so, you know, when this hit, it definitely, you know, speaking purely from an emotional perspective, um, but yeah, it, it was, it was extremely difficult, extremely shocking, um, and that hasn't changed. Um, I mean, here I am, you know, seven years later, and uh, and I'm still still dealing with the ramifications of uh, of how that's played out. How I mean, can you describe the the shock? what 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 did it shock specifically your trust in law enforcement your trust in institutions your what what exactly um so um you know i guess if if i'm going to be um you know somewhat introspective uh there 
there's both, um, you know, I, I think you take a, a deep look inside yourself mm. and you take a deep look outside. Uh, on the outside, like you said, yeah, I mean, there's no question that um, you look at the world differently. You look at the institutions that are in place that are supposed to protect you uh, in a completely different light. Um, you know, uh, again, I, I have to to be somewhat guarded, uh, but it it's definitely um, you question you question, uh, and I I do to to this day. Um, what drives some of some of um, the activities? You know, are these people who um, who uh, whose ultimate goal is really to reach? Uh, truth and justice and from a I, I guess uh, looking inwards um, you know I think we all have sort of uh, uh, an image of who we are mm. right we all look in the mirror uh, at any point in your life and you sort of you, you, you sort of or you feel like you know who you are and what you represent and what you're about and um, to be hit with, you know, the, that type of you know, scandal and situation, it, you know, looking in the mirror and trying to figure out how did this happen, you know, was definitely uh, was definitely eye-opening and, and, and uh, a very tough pill to swallow. Did you beat yourself up for being too naive? Um, it's a very good question. Um, you know, I just, uh, cause yeah, I, I identify with a lot of what right. your outlook on life and meaning and purpose right. and all that stuff. And in built in that is a, is a, is an optimism, right? That correct. You put in the hard work, you dedicate yourself to things that are, you know, essentially the eternal forces right. of life. And, you know, w- First of all, what else is there? What are the choices there? But second, it's going to work out. There is no other path. Right. And, you know, if, if that all comes crashing down, then, then, then what do you have left? So firstly, I think that's the greatest challenge is trying to get past that, mm. right? And that's the greatest challenge for on a personal level is with all that garbage, you know, how, how do you dig yourself out yeah. and put yourself back in that position where... You can find the good and you can stick to your ideology and stick to your beliefs. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, well, two things. First, you know, people said to me uh, in the early days, in the early years, as after this happened, uh, you know, you're going to leave the country. Oh, wow. Um, and I said, no, of course not. I said, you can throw a lot of things at me. Um, if you take away my belief system, then I don't have anything. Mm. And I'm not going to allow them to, to take that away from me. Mm. Um, so that, that, you know, that remains what, what drives, what drives me. Um, yeah. And, and that's, and that's, that will remain solid because yeah. uh, this, this story, this fiction, whatever you want to call it, that is Israel with its, with its borders and its customs and its language and its culture. Um, it, it still provides you know meaningful lives for millions of people every single day 
right including yours and mine so a belief in in that project isn't it, it doesn't fall apart with your personal tragedy i, I would get i would get correct yeah correct yeah and i also don't believe in tearing it down just because you have per, you know personal tragedy yeah um there's room to you know fix things there's room to improve things but uh but yeah, I, I definitely think that that's uh, that's part of it, and and I think from a personal perspective also, and this goes to, you know, what you were saying. I I, I had a meeting, I mean, this was in, in the in the private sector. Uh, there was a business that I was working on that ended up falling through for all the wrong reasons, and I was meeting with um, somebody who was involved, and I said to him, you know, I need to change my I can't be so naive, I can't be so trusting, and mm. I need to. And he said to me, and this is a, a friend, uh, a business leader in the U.S., um, who said to me, he said, no, Ari, you, you're, you got it wrong. He said, the reason that you got to this place is because of who you are. And if you have to pay the price every so often uh, along the way, then so be it. Uh, but you have to stick to your truths. And uh, mm. and, and that's that's a lesson that stuck with me uh, as I went through this and, and other challenges. Wow. Um, so was that um, your your own validation of yourself? Or was that a, I was good enough to work in the prime minister's office, and so therefore I should be good enough to continue on doing whatever. Or, you know, and I was good enough to attract clients. Like, were you looking for external validation to say the way I was living before was good enough? Or was it a sort of your own thing of like, look, I, I built my life this way and I screwed up royally, you know, uh, at this point, at, I don't know how old you were in your forties, I guess. Uh, yeah. Early forties. Early forties. Um, devastating, but that doesn't negate all the other good that I did before that. Um, well, first of all, yeah, I wouldn't categorize it. Uh, I think the result was a screw up. I think that my actions, you know, again, can't get into it, but, yeah. um, I'd call it more of a challenge than than a screw up, but um, ultimately, it's it's a work in progress. Um, and I say this seven years later, um, there isn't a day that goes by that I don't struggle with this. Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, because really? it's both, and it, it, it touches on both internal and and external. I mean, you know. Ultimately, we live in a society where external validation is critical, yeah. right? You want to succeed in business. You want to succeed in community. You want to succeed in anything you do. Um, we feed off of those, you know, uh, social feedbacks. Yeah. And, and when you're concerned uh, with that and how people are going to respond and is it going to limit my ability to excel or to succeed, then, you know, then that's obviously... Uh, a challenge and and on a personal level yeah i mean it's uh it's it's something that uh doesn't go away that quickly let's put it that way it's it's something that um i don't know people should one of the many reasons people should study donald trump is that, that guy has been tainted by so many scandals and personal right and the guy, the guy was just the president of the United States. You know what? There are people out there, uh, including, you know, in this country, exactly. uh, including Netanyahu, Netanyahu. Right, yeah, exactly. that yeah. just they have a very thick skin mm. um, and they're able to compartmentalize to the point where, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, 
external issues have a very limited uh, effect on them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not everyone's like that. Uh, what I I do wonder though, like what what is it that they how they frame their whatever the hell's going on and their and that and the place that that takes place in their life. Is it just a they just they they obviously have to see it differently and i'm just wondering what what that framing is did did anyone give you a proper framing to say um no i i you know i i i got no lessons on how to deal with this (laughs) (laughs) there was no mentor to go to for it but but i do you know that there 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 were people who did say to me you know um that you have to look at it from, you know, 40,000 feet um, in the sense that um, life is, you know, peaks and valleys and it sucks. Um, but, uh, you know, eventually you get past it. Yeah. And, and and then it's back to who you are as a person and what your goals are and what your values are. Yeah. And, uh, and that ultimately will work out. Um, I, I do also wonder, and this is my optimism right now bleeding into this conversation, but do you ever think, maybe on your good days when you're struggling with this, that the the tougher the, the low, then the sweeter the high will be? It's like, oh man, I came back from that. Um, so I, I know that that is a school of thought. I... Um, I, I I don't connect as much to that. Um, How come? I don't. I, you know what? I I do have an innate um, drive. Um, you know, maybe it's due to the fanatical uh, sports environment I was brought up in. Um, you know, I, I come from a very mild mannered family mm-hmm. uh, until we get on to you know the sports. <laughs> field or, or court or whatever it is yeah. and so I I I had I always did have that uh, drive to uh, to succeed and I think that um, being able to apply that to this type of situation where uh, viewing it as that type of challenge meaning yeah this is terrible and it sucks and this is going on forever um, but still wanting to win um and obviously you can define win in in different ways but um uh being able to get back to a point where um you know you can you can you can bloody me you can you know you can knock me down but you know but i'm i'm still gonna fight and to, to the point where I can impact this country and I can, you know, influence for the good. And it doesn't have to be in the political realm, uh, yeah. obviously. But um, but I think that that more, um, more than anything keeps my head above water. Yeah. You should, uh, if you can, just talk to Jonathan Pollard. I mean, that guy. So I have a great story with him. So I, I've actually I've actually spent some time with him. Um, and it was one of those moments of pride that Wait, I had since he came back to Israel, or? even before, even, uh, even before. How? Yeah. So, um, post prime minister's office, um, I'm in New York city, um, running between business meetings and it was literally running. I was in, I was in midtown 
leaving a meeting and late for my next meeting and it is raining and I'm running down, you know, Fifth Avenue. And as I'm running, lo and behold, there's Jonathan and Esther Pollard in front of me. Yeah. Never met them before. Um, and I stop. I don't have an umbrella. <laughs> and I said, um, you don't know who I am, uh, Ari. Um, but I did speak to Esther when I was in the prime minister's office a number of times. And um, just for everyone that, that Esther was Jonathan's wife while he was still in prison and was essentially his lead campaigner to get him free, right? Yeah, and she, uh, she just tragically passed away just yeah. uh, not too long ago. Breast cancer, right? Um, I, I, I believe so. Yeah. I believe so. Okay. Um, and he says to me, he says, Ari, I know exactly who you are. He said, Esther told me that when you were chief of staff, um, you were someone that she could talk to. You were the only person in that uh, in that world um, that was able to, um, you know, share information and be there to support. And um, and then we got on to talking, and we and uh, we agreed to to meet up in Jerusalem when he when he got there. We actually ended up getting together prior to that, and I've since seen him a couple times here mm -hmm. uh, in Israel, but. Um, um, but getting back to what we were talking about earlier, that for me was a moment of validation um, mm. for uh, the job that, that, that I went back to. Right. Um, you know, being able to see that in, in the life of somebody who um, affected, you know, again, whether, you know, you, you can question what happened and how it happened with him, but there's no question, uh, and you saw it in every public opinion here in Israel, the Israeli uh, uh, public uh, was uh, completely uh, in support of, of Pollard and wanted him uh, yeah. to come to Israel. No, I, I guess my, my point I was trying to make was um, when it doesn't matter who, who it is that gets involved in legal issues, especially in, in countries that are relatively um, free of corruption. Um, once they get linked to, you know, yeah. charges of uh, fraud or, or um, breach of trust or whatever, right, or, or espionage, you just, it's it's all it's always there in the back of your mind of like, hmm, I wonder, you know, I wonder if yeah. this person, uh, who right. knows, right, right, and uh, and that's devastating, I suppose. On yeah. The, on the other hand, because it just, as as uh, again, just to bring this back to the case of Jonathan Pollard, I was you know sitting there astonished by this person i mean really a remarkable person but i that there is that side of me that thinks i don't know i mean maybe right. maybe not right but it, it's it's weird if i was like literally that night sitting next to a guy and i was living in parallel universes right. as i was talking to him and saying oh my god here's this guy telling this remarkable story and um of of ideological um courage essentially right yeah. i mean he's de devoted his entire life to the safety of the jewish people so he says and the way he tells it i'm inclined to believe it and yet right there's a lot of, there's that other part of it right which is how the hell do i know right right
Um, so <clears throat> there's obviously that cloud that yeah. Whether whether it's real or not, right? Um, yeah, is is hanging over your head. But um, yeah. but I do believe, and I've seen over the years, and I think that you know when when you're faced with these types of challenges, um, all you can do is look forward. And you know, I, I'm a very big believer in people, and I think that um, there's stuff you read in the newspaper. And then there's real life, right? And I remember sitting around the security cabinet uh, table and then seeing the newspaper the next day and thinking to myself, this is not even close to what actually <laughs> happened. Like, how is this possible? Mm. Um, and I don't even mean that from a fake news perspective. I, I just think that, you know, that there is a world of you know, media out there and there's a world, especially, you know, in this day and age and you know, social media, et cetera, where um, things are written. Some are true. Some are less true. Yeah. Uh, and then there's sitting here with somebody and, and talking and connecting. And I think that for me, um, I think that ultimately, uh, you know, that's where uh, th that's where an impression is should be made, and yeah. and, and, um, yeah. and it's less about a headline that someone read, or um, you know, especially when you're putting that into the context of a political reality. Meaning, um, politics could be a dirty game, mm -hmm. and uh, as a result of uh, as a result of that, you know. When, when you come home from playing football in the mud, you know, it's going to be all over your clothes. Um, or as Shimon Paris famously said, you know, when you walk into a perfume store, even if you don't buy anything, when you walk out, you you know, the scent uh, remains with you. Um, so he, he appar uh, apparently said a few other more, slightly more dirty things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but okay. Right, yeah. Um, but ultimately, I think that, you know, when you put that into context, yeah. um, it doesn't remove that cloud, but it definitely, uh, I think, uh, yeah, allows you for a, a somewhat different path forward. And how long how long did it take you to start the new company from, from the time you got, because you were stopped at the airport, right? Uh, at some point, yeah. I mean, that was in the midst of the whole. Uh, okay, so you already knew that that something was up. Yeah, no. I mean, that was that was I don't know a year into this whole episode. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That so was. so you left left the office, the prime minister's office. Uh, left the office in middle of uh, well, I left in early 2015, and then I worked on the campaign, and I I left after the campaign. Okay. Which is middle of 2015. Um, and yeah, I went back, back into the private sector and, straight away, and, uh, straight away. Wow. And, um, I mean, someone has to pay your bills. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah there's not, not much room for, uh, you know, for vacationing. Um, and yeah, and that was that and got, you know, got back on that horse. And, and, uh, but this wasn't Etour, uh, what you started, what you're... No, Etour, I launched about uh, a year and a half ago. Okay. Um, and what is it exactly? 
because there's not a lot of information on your website. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, the, the the company was created as a result of 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 certain, yeah, I, I would say certain realities that that I became familiar with, both in government and after I left government. Um, uh, uh, within the realm of Israeli intelligence. Mm. Um, one of the pillars, I would say, of Israeli intelligence is combating uh, terror financing. Mm. Um, Israel's been at the forefront of, of that area for, for decades. Israel was really probably the first country in the world to recognize that... Um, you terrorists know, need money? That terrorists need money, and if you can stop the flow of money, you're stopping terrorism, meaning mm. it's just as important, just as critical as um, you know the units that you send send out to uh, to arrest people. Um, and um, so I, I was introduced a couple years ago to the world of asset tracing, which at the time I really didn't know much about. But it turns out that there's ridiculous amounts of money uh, that go missing on a global scale every year. I saw it was, what was it, like uh, $800 billion to $2 trillion a year? Yeah, I mean, if, if, you, if you include in those numbers uh, funds that, are people, that people are looking for, right, whether it's uh, as part of due diligence, whether it's you know, litigation, there, there's a, lo a lot of different um, areas that, um, whereby people are looking to get a better grasp of what, you know, wh what f where funds are, uh, what financial capabilities are on the other side of the table, stuff like that. Um, Wait, you, you lost me there. What, what do you mean? Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example. I mean, it could be uh, it could be a straight up investment. Mm -hmm. uh, we were actually contacted by a significant sovereign wealth fund uh, at some point, and that was about to make a significant investment into uh, a private entity. Okay, and they wanted to verify and validate the information that they were given um, finan financially, meaning there are dozens of companies out there that do business intelligence and they you know, gather information on an individual, on a company, but this is more of a focus on the, money. Know, on the money. And uh, so that's not asset tracing per se, uh, but ultimately it's, it's very similar. Okay. Um, so yeah, so, so together with um, you know, some former Intel uh, people in this country, we launched eTour, and it started off as a service business. Um, we took, you know, the know-how, the expertise, the methodology, yeah, um, and opened up shop, and you know, put out our sign, and 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 work started coming in. And right off the bat, being uh, being Israeli and you know being part of this uh, ecosystem, um, we said right away, okay, let's go find the best technology here in Israel to to give us an edge on the competition. And we started looking and meeting with Intel companies and cyber and you know and you name it, and we didn't really find anything that that touched on this realm specifically. What I mean, what does that even look like? Um, well, you know, I guess the most basic question would be, okay, where does this person bank? Where does this person have financial assets? Um, and how, how can you access that? Isn't that private information? In 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 some cases it is. In some cases it's not. Um, where where people bank? 
there are, again, without getting into any specific details, first of all, there's, uh, you know, there's leaks all the time that end up in the public sphere. Mm. Um, and, you know, again, you can argue the legality or, you know, the, 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 you can argue the decision behind the, you know, the, the, the legal status of such information, and and it, it is a, a hot topic for debate. Um, but there there's a lot of information that is out there in the public sphere, um, and that's just an example. Um, I mean, I can give you another example, which is less less private for that you know from that perspective. And that's uh, corporate registration, right? Um, in most countries, that is uh, information that's accessible. And the ability to to uh, connect an individual or a corporation with other corporations um, that may not be as um, known to uh, whoever it is that's you know looking for this um, is you know is an example. Mm. Um, but it goes it goes well beyond that. Um, so, anyways, yeah. So we we looked at the Israeli market and we we didn't really find anything. And then we started looking outside of Israel and um, and we found a couple very interesting technologies or databases and stuff like that, um, but nothing comprehensive and nothing that had some of the capabilities that we thought could um, could be interesting. Um, so about six months ago, we uh, I don't want to say shifted because we still we still take on cases, um, but the focal point of uh, of the company shifted towards technology. Um, and yeah, we're in the process now of developing um, what you know what we believe will be the most advanced financial intelligence uh, platform uh, out there. And and the who would use this? So interestingly enough, and this goes to to the point uh, that you made, um, we found in conversations and in meetings with you know with some of the biggest players uh, across the globe that some of these same needs or some of the same pieces of information were valuable in regular due diligence uh, in KYC, know your client, um, uh, uh, sanction reporting, uh, compliance, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we, at that point, started, um, well, initially our focus was on U.S. Uh, law firms. Oh. Um, that was really the initial target market. Um, but since it's expanded significantly, we're talking to and working with some of the leading, uh, you know, big four accounting firms, uh, some of the top U.S. law firms, financial institutions, anybody who, and again, it doesn't necessarily have to be for investigative purposes. Obviously, for investigative purposes, it's of extreme value as well, um, but for all the other reasons that I mentioned, due diligence, know your client, uh, compliance, et cetera, um, this is the type of tool that would give the user uh, or the service provider a much broader uh, perspective of uh, the target that he's looking at. What's it like to work with um, former spies? Um, at times can be challenging. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, you know, when, when you're trained to uh, be, uh, deceitful and you're trained to, um, you know, I guess not give straight answers. 
um, you know, there's a transition into uh, the private sector. Okay. Um, but thank God. I mean, the, my partners are, are great, great guys, and, um, and I'm lucky. I mean, that, that was actually, um, I guess you can, you can call it part of the uh, lessons uh, that I've learned over time, is that it was critical to me to put together really a good group of people uh, just on a, you know, on a moral and ethical level, and, uh, and, and that's what we have, so it's, it's a pleasure. How, how, <clears throat> how do you guard against um, your partner slipping back into that mode of deceit and... Uh... Right. Um, no, I, I think my partners today are, uh, are quite capable of doing that on their own. They're, uh, <laughs> they've been able to turn it off. And, uh, you know, it, it's what, what's unique about that experience is um, it, it's less, you know, the persona and more the expertise. And I think that, mm. um, you know, the fact that no matter where you are, uh, in the chain of uh, intelligence gathering uh, for the state of Israel, you are touching on the need to stem uh, terror financing, and mm. um, and I think that you know the unique perspective that they bring to the table um, and the know-how is is really a tremendous asset that most countries uh, can't really compare. Hmm. Are, are there other countries that are on the level of Israel in terms of um, anti-terror financing activities? Well, the United States has has made it, um, you know, uh, I would say a central pillar of their activities as mm. well. Um, but just by by virtue of the you know uh, the size of that country and the number of um, resources, know, they resources can throw and it. organizations, you know, it's it's. It's definitely spread out a lot more than it is here. It's it's much more concentrated in Israel, so yeah. the know-how is uh, much easier to access. Got it. Um, so you <laughs> and uh, and you're also a writer. <laughs> I am now a writer as well. Well, I, you know, I, I mean, the truth is, in the past, I'd I'd pen uh, opinion pieces for uh, the, for the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Post and some other uh, newspapers here in Israel every so often, but those usually came more from a moment of you know fire in my belly and just, you know, oh my God, you know, someone's got to write something about yeah. this. Uh, but yeah, uh, but I did decide um, that uh, I wanted to share some of the unique uh, perspectives. Um, was this stuff that you were jotting down as it was happening or now you're just, you're writing it all from scratch? I'm writing it all from, from scratch. I was, um, I was very sensitive to the information that I was privy to when I was in office. Mm. Uh, so I... I didn't keep records and I, you know, it was all, it was all just stored in my, in my head. Okay. Yeah. Um, writing is, is, is tough. Huh? I mean, it's, your mind is complete chaos and you've got to make order and sense of it on a page or a screen. Yeah. It's not an easy thing to do. It is definitely not an easy thing to do. I've, uh, I've had some tremendous help, um, uh, a friend uh, who has been involved in many, many projects and has really been, you know, holding my hand through this uh, process. And I started writing years ago, um, meaning shortly after I left the prime minister's office, mm. um, I started jotting things down and I spent, 
you know, many, many, you know, hundreds of hours uh, writing. Um, but you're you're 100 correct that um, there's a big difference between writing an opinion piece and writing a book, and uh, sort of you know the 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 game planning and and building a roadmap and and you know the the points you're trying to make and how you weave them into various you know events and stories yeah. is uh, is a unique expertise and thank God I I, I had some uh, I had some good help with that. There's this uh, I don't know if you ever heard of the writer um, he's dead but his name is Christopher Hitchens. Sure. Um, and when he was asked once how he writes, he says he writes as though um, I don't know how I don't know how you pronounce the word, but posthumously, po- you know, right. as if he was dead. Right. Um, in other words, he doesn't care. He's just going to write the damn thing, as though it's the final word that he's got to say on whatever it is that he has to say, and consequences be damned. Right. Which is to say, he he brings his full force of intellectual honesty and courage to whatever topic it is that he's tackling. Do you, does that? Is that this kind of style that you're? Um... Um, well, I definitely feel like I'm writing an honest um, and open um, uh, narrative of of the period that I'm that I'm covering. I think I mean, that it is a story about your life. No, no. it is not. Um, that may come, you know, sometime in the future. We'll see. Um, no, it's it. Well, I, I definitely I I appear. I mean, I I'm 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 telling a story from my perspective. Yeah. Um, but it's it's more about the events that took place um, and the his you know from a historical perspective mm. in that period, um, but in a little bit of a more intimate um, way. In other words, it's not you know it's not a history book. It's a story. Um, it's it's a true story. It's a tr- story that I witnessed uh, firsthand uh, most of it. Um, and um, and I weave into that, you know, some of the personal experiences that I had while uh, while uh, those events were taking place, um, which I think is unique um, because, uh, you know, I would say almost all historians are telling secondhand stories. Um, you yeah. know, they're hearing it from from other sources. And even autobiography, right, uh, has uh, its own, um, you know, its own twist to it. And um, I guess I'm sort of the fly on the wall uh, while this is taking place, and uh, and I believe that it's going to be an interesting. What uh, What are the years that it covers? It's uh, mostly 2014, 15. Um, I do talk about you know the early days when when I uh, when I entered the prime minister's office with Netanyahu in 2009. Um, because, uh, but again, more from a historical perspective, meaning that was when the relationship between, uh, or that relationship between the U.S. and Israel and Netanyahu and Obama was sort of, uh, you know, the foundations were laid in in, in that initial year, yeah. um, and then it plays out again in fourteen fifteen. Okay. Um, who are you writing it for? I mean, I know there's a you know, broad audience or something, but when right. you're when you're writing this down and you're thinking, who's going to read this? Who is that person or people? Um, so I, I I really I think any um, any lover of Israel, anyone who hmm. is um, interested in the U.S. Israel relationship, uh, definitely has a strong um, uh, vantage point of of how 
that you know how critical that relationship is and um, I guess certain boundaries within that relationship um, and and I think anyone who's interested in you know in in history I mean it really is it's a unique perspective on significant events that haven't been focused on I mean they, they they're, they're, these events are mentioned in some other books um, that have come out um, but never um, never with a focus on the events that, that we're talking about and um, and I guess one other group that I'm writing it for is, is really you know I know my family my children you know it's really um, my kids were young when I was uh, working in government and um, you know the older ones uh, have some memory some memories but uh, but uh, there's no question that part of this for me on a personal level is the ability to uh, you know to share some of that with them do you have any boys I have one one boy one boy 14 year old Alicia so how many you have the one girl in the army I have boy? Uh, girl girl boy girl so my uh, 19 year old is in is in the army mm -hmm. uh, I have a 17 year old who's a senior that's the one in Miami right uh, no uh, so I have four in Israel well now five in it well so four from a first marriage and uh, two stepchildren uh, from my second marriage um, so uh, so one in the army, one's a senior in high school. Um, my son is in ninth grade, and then my little one's ten. And then we have uh, uh, an eleventh grader in Miami, and uh, and a twenty-year-old who's uh, here in Israel at IDC. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Brady Bunch. <laughs> yeah, but isn't it? It's so. Um, it's so interesting that. We really do want, and I can tell from you, but also from me as well, that we, we want our kids to know, you know, that time that they didn't see us, it was, it was doing meaning, meaningful stuff. And just, I don't know how you raised your kids, but my father especially always told me to follow your passion. Do what, do what drives you, do what makes you just, you know, you just can't stop thinking about whatever the hell that, that thing is. And you'll be fine, you know. Um, and uh, you know, obviously within reason, right? If it, if your thing is just about your own glorification, it's probably not going to take you too far. But if there's something in there that you know that you really love to do, and also just it's good for other people, then go for it, do it, you know, and you'll find your path. And um, I don't know. I just it's. I think I love the idea of, of leaving a document, you know. It's like, don't ask me anymore. Just read the damn book. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, for sure. I think that, you know, it's, it's, uh, I couldn't agree with your father more. I couldn't agree with you more. It's really, uh, is that how you raised your uh, kids? I try to till today. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, um, <clears throat> we have one life to live and we want to make it meaningful, not just like you said, on a personal level. Uh, what do you, leaving behind in this world and um, that is definitely something that we're constantly raising with the kids and um, and I hope we're successful in conveying that message yeah do you do you think about death a lot 
Um, that's a very good question. Um, well, first of all, lately, uh, unfortunately, more than uh, than previously. But but um, yeah, because of. Well, I mean, there's been some challenges within the family. Okay. Um, and my my wife's uh, father passed away a few years ago, okay. and um, and within my family, there's we've had our challenges over the last uh, couple of years. But mm. um, but yeah, um, and I but I, but I think it's it's less about the finality and more about what we were just talking about, which is, you know. Um, we all, you know, we all have an hourglass that is, you know, that that is never turned over, and um, and it's just a matter of, you know, what am I going to accomplish? What am I going to leave behind? What am I going to um, leave this world with uh, when when that day comes? Um, yeah. Do you do you do you sense that your kids have? the same outlook you you live only once and make the most of it or when because when when did that really hit you for me it hit me when i when i became a a father really actually even before when my when i first found out that my wife uh was pregnant Mm -hmm. Um, then you started thinking of death so the way that worked was i was in my uh, we were in our apartment together and um we had uh, some cousins coming over just to hang out and uh, my wife goes into the bathroom and then she calls me and she's got this uh, look on her face and her eyes are all of a sudden like, you know, <laughs> that big. And she shows me this thing, uh, this, you know, that strip. And I, I have no idea. Pre-COVID. What the... Oh, yeah, yeah. This is. Now I'm saying because the strip was. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> man, doesn't that feel like a long time right, ago? Right, right. Um, uh, so, so anyway, she, I don't remember whether, whether happy faces, uh, whatever was on this strip that she peed on few minutes ago and uh and i was like oh okay and then they come in and we have it's like this just you know they were there for maybe i don't know half an hour or an hour and it just it felt like an eternity because we had this amazing piece of news to discuss you know it's like it's happening right we've never done this before What, what what does all this mean and uh and my cousins were there and they were talking and you know, I don't know what the hell they were talking about. So it was just the thoughts were running in my mind. And right. all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, you know, who knows how the mind works? It's crazy. Um, I thought to myself, um, I thought, I'm going to be a father. Uh, fathers get old. Old people die. I'm going to die. Right. And then all of a sudden it hit me like, oh, Christ, I'm going to die. Right. Like before I thought, yeah, this is just going to go on forever. Right. Right. I'm young. And, uh, you know, what what consequences? (laughs) Right. Right. Um, And then, you know, then then it's just been this journey of sussing out what what exactly that means. Right. Right. But it took me a while. I was um, I was 31 until when when my first son was born. So is it something that you still think about regularly? Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I, I think that's part of it. I don't, I mean, I think that our children are are still young, you know. They, there's still an innocence there that, uh, you know, that uh, I'm happy to have them retain for as long as possible. Um, but that doesn't take away from instilling, you know, the type of purpose that you're referring to. Yeah. And I think that that's something that, as a parent, 
Um, and as, as a parent living in this country specifically, right? Um, because, I mean, you picked up and moved here from the United States. Right. I came with my family. They picked up and moved here. This was a choice, right? Um, there's millions of Jews around the world who have not made this choice. Um, yeah. So there's really, or I believe, there should be purpose and everything that you do here, right? I mean, because yeah. you don't have to be doing this. Um, I mean, I feel uh, an imperative from various perspectives, right? Whether it's a religious perspective, uh, uh, imperative or, uh, uh, you know, national imperative, et cetera. But, but I do feel that that is, you know, and that, that has been something that we have tried to convey and I've tried to convey to, to our kids from, you know, from day one, which is really, you know, this is important. Yeah. It's a, it's a hard one, though, to convey because, um, you know, life is this, it's this ancient gift, right? It's this miracle, like uh, every breath you take, it's a, it's a, it's a culmination of a process that, or many processes that took, you know, hundreds, billions of years, whatever, right? I don't know. Like, I can't even compute the process right. that it took just for me, me to take in oxygen and, and and breathe it out right and um and and we're so accustomed to thinking about our lives about you know peak experiences right i so you went to work for the prime minister's office i moved to israel i i, I married my wife i kids and um but our our lives are are also the the silly moments too right <laughs> like it's it's the sitting on the toilet in the bathroom and you know, drinking a glass of water and having an, an empty mind of thoughts like all of that is is life as well and how it's it's hard to find the right strike the right balance of living as though every single moment counts because it actually does right but then you know if you the danger there is you're just overwhelmed by by the beauty of, of it all and uh, and then you just can't get anything done because right. you're just sitting there in puddles crying because oh my god <laughs> like, right. uh, how lucky am i am to, to be alive and to feel all this stuff right um and as kids you know, you just think to think about the amount of time wasted, right? Yeah. Right, right? But but I you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't take it back, right? I have no regrets on, on any of the time that I dicked around and wasted as a kid. Right. Um I suppose Israelis waste less time? I'm not sure. Well, they just what, have what? different ways of wasting time, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's just different. Um no, I think also in this era, you know, with Netflix and with social media and yeah. TikTok and whatever you know, kids in America and kids in Israel are probably doing a lot of the same stuff. A lot of the same stuff. Yeah. Um, no, but I think that I think that you're right, and I, I don't think that detracts from it at all. I think that you know, there's yeah, there's there's the short term and there's the long term, right? You you want to have your ultimate goal, and you want to always remember where you're going, right? You want to be able to pull out that compass and make sure you're still headed in the right direction, but at yeah. the same time, take in. Uh, taking the moment, um, you know, that's something that I think many people this day and age struggle with. Um, and it's something that's definitely, I, you know, I find worthwhile is really trying to remind yourself as often as possible on a daily basis. Um, you know, so what about today? What about right now? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and just taking it in. Well, what about right now, man? This is amazing. <laughs> this is great. 
it's definitely been I, I did promise you when I called you, I was like, this is going to be the best conversation of your life, or, or at least for the month or something like that. So uh, yeah. I tried, I tried. Well, <laughs> I, it's definitely been uh, fantastic and enjoyable, and uh, I appreciate it. Cool, man. Uh, I'm glad we did this. Me as well. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. All right, man. Let's, let's uh, wrap it up. Okay, great.